This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, listeners, brave navigators of the enigmatic and the concealed. Have you ever felt the pull of the unanswered, the allure of the mysteries that shroud our existence? For more than a decade, a unique comic publisher has dared to dive into these mysteries, unafraid of the secrets they might uncover. This audacious entity is Paranoid American. Welcome to the mystifying universe of the Paranoid American podcast. Launched in the year 2012, Paranoid American has been on a mission to decipher the encrypted secrets of our world. From the unnerving enigma of MK Ultra mind control to the clandestine assemblies of secret societies. From the awe-inspiring frontiers of forbidden technology to the arcane patterns of occult symbols in our very own pop culture. They have committed to unveiling the concealed realities that lie just beneath the surface. Join us as we navigate these intricate landscapes, decoding the hidden scripts of our society and challenging the accepted perceptions of reality. Folks, I've got a big problem on my hands. There's a company called Paranoid American making all these funny memes and comics. Now, I'm a fair guy. I believe in free speech uh, as long as it doesn't cross the line. And if these AI-generated memes dare to make fun of me, they're crossing the line. This is your expedition into the realm of the extraordinary, the secret, the shrouded. Come with us as we sift through the world's grand mysteries, question the standardized narratives, and brave the cryptic labyrinth of the concealed truth. So strap yourselves in, broaden your horizons, and steel yourselves for a voyage into the enigmatic heart of the paranoid American podcast, where each story, every image, every revelation brings us one step closer to the elusive truth. You got no idea who the hell I got tonight. I mean, you probably do because it's in the title or whatever, but you got no idea what we're about to get into tonight, aside from whatever's in the description and and whatever. But uh, this is going to be a super dope one, man. Uh, I guess the man might need a little bit of introduction. I don't know if you know him or not. This is my homeboy, Slick, Slick Dissident. What's up? What's up, homie? What what are you doing in the window, dude? There's a window <laughs> in a window. I already like how this is starting out. We're getting we're getting yeah, deep. Buddy. Going straight to the soul of the soul of the soul of the matter. So uh I, I met Slick through doing, I think, podcasts with uh oh wait, hold on. Here we'll, we'll chill out like this. I, I met you through Juan doing a whole bunch of different deep dives, a cult book club, uh, a bunch of follow-ups to a cult book club. We got into like florida man rants which are really fun and like overlaying tarot cards and constellations and 
I just want to say that I was for for the first 40 years of my life, I want to say I was very much, you know, the the wordplay was a lot of mumbo jumbo to me. It didn't make any sense. I kind of like scoffed at it a little bit. And uh and Gabe, dude, Gabe brings such a and aka slick dissident, but Gabe brings such like a fun, I want to say Alan Wattsy kind of like everything's a game, everything's chaos, embrace the chaos kind of way of looking at this stuff. And it kind of reinvigorated me of like, there's more to it than nothing at all. So just on that premise, I'm ready to to have my mind opened a little bit more. And you know something about a topic that you've talked about a few times. And it's like, I've always opened up a little like tab in my bookmark or like a little research, but I never got into it. So I hope you can give a crash course on Enneagrams in a little bit. So anyways, uh, I want you to to tell people where they can find you, uh, what your whole deal is. And then I don't know if you can drop it in like a freestyle rap of some kind. No pressure. Dissidents, dissidents, dissidents. Dissidents, dissidents, dissidents. Yeah, it comes with a hook, too. We'll flow, walk slow. We'll follow, don't buffalo. Just let you know. That's dope, dude. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, we, 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 we could keep going all night, but I want to <laughs> I wanna let you get a proper introduction here and get into this. Yeah, man. Yeah, Slick Dissidents, my channel name. Uh, you know, I've been ciphering my whole life, I realize, now that I look back. Uh, when I was young, the school teacher put up, like, three different ways to multiply by nine. And while she's explaining those, I found a fourth way. And I'm like, on my own path. And so we go the whole, se- the whole year. And on my paperwork, she keeps counting my work wrong, but I get the right answer, right? But eventually we have a sit down. And she wants to see in my mind, why am I going through this? And sure enough, she turns, she says she's never heard anybody multiply by nine the way I do, but it's a theorem. Like I invented a theorem. She's like, that's called a theorem. So she explains that to me. So I got a taste of successful theory work at a very young age. And it was very impressive. I think I was nine. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, my teacher just really encouraged me. She's like, you know, you don't have to, I'm not going to teach the other kids this and I'm not going to confuse them with a fourth way to multiply, but you have, uh, you have a good system. Don't change it. So on the down low, she told, she confirmed me and told me you got a lens and nobody else has keep working with that, which was really cool. That's a good teacher. There's not a lot of teachers that would give you that advice. A lot of them would, slap your hand with the ruler right and be like nope you got enough do it this way the next time yeah man yes and the theorem that i worked out uh strangely enough uh, now that i'm so much older uh it uh yeah so i'm just kind of the kind of uh, lateral thinker you could say well, i didn't right. think we were gonna get right into math bro but uh <laughs> i'm interested do you remember what the first three ways that she was trying to teach everyone was versus your fourth or do you remember like any of it do you remember your your original theorem yeah my theorem is you multiply by 10 first and then you just subtract the number you multiplied by so uh five or four times 10 gives you 40 and then you minus the five that you multiplied it by it gives you the 45 so that's and it's so simple you just divide by 10 or you multiply by 10 first and then you just subtract the derivative of the what you multiply by. Nice. And, and 
And it is, it's so much shorter and quicker than the other things she was telling people, you know, it was a really, uh, a shorter route. You know, this is a, a weird sink for me, bro. Like, damn you for bringing up math, like right away. <laughs> but, but this, the exact same thing, multiples of nine, I remembered in math class and probably around the same age, dude, because it, it was like single digits times single digits. We were, we were into that double digit versus double digit stuff yet. But I realized that any number times nine is that number minus one and then the number that comes after it or whatever it takes for those two numbers to add up to nine. So I just realized nine times three. Well, I know that two comes before three and then to find out how many I need to add between two and, you know, to get nines, two and seven, three and six, four and five, five and four. You know what I mean? Like anyways, that, that pattern, same exact story, dude. But the thing is that was the only pattern I ever realized in all of my schooling. And I found out way after, like after I was even out of college, almost, I think I had like one or two math classes left in college. And I found out about Vedic mathematics. And sure enough, that was one of these like listed rules. And it's like these 22 magical rules where you don't really have to know math. You just have to know this formula, kind of like that nine thing. So your yours is dope too. Do you have any other ones that that you came up with, or ones that you use, or is that just the, the one off? Well, I do. I guess I have other. Well, yeah, my math mind is kind of ahead of myself a lot of times. I sense uh, answers before I can get my work out of me uh, so often. But I don't really have any others. But I do want to mention, like what you just described, those numbers that cor- that they consummate to a nine. They come to balance. Um, those are actually the, uh, almost the entire column, uh, right-hand column of the periodic table, all of the noble gases, their atomic numbers are consummates of uh, nine and their names in Greek are very mysterious. Uh, they're the late, some of the later additions to the periodic table. But all of the noble gases are called noble gases because they're like lethargic or uh, hidden or inactive. They don't bond well with other gases, the other elements near or around them. So they were kind of dormant or like sleeper cell elements that were uh, discovered late in the periodic table's history. But the names that they gave to that column are like, um, we have like xenon and. I'm Which means I up. think, Let's see. yeah, I think it means like one is a stranger, one is hidden, and the other, uh, they're, they're very, uh, they were named at the same time. So they almost form a sentence uh, based on the fact that they were hidden and hard to discover for the, uh, for science. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, and okay. So, so we've got helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, radon, and Oganesson, I'm going to say. Oh, yeah, that's the last one, right? Yes. Now, the reason the reason why this is so fascinating in so many ways, obviously, the Enneagram uh, uh, adheres to this nature of things that come to nine, they balance or cancel out. So there's something kind of elementally being expressed in the math as well. But Hades is number nine in the Enneagram. He is the hidden one. The, yep, the, the occulted one. Nine is self-absorbed. When you add it to anything, it eats itself. Nine plus four becomes 13. 
The one and the three goes back to the four. It's like nothing happened. So the the nine has this hidden self-dissolving effect. And somehow that nature of of the egregore that is a nine (laughs) is also expressed even in that list of the noble gases. Now, just to make everything make, I just need to support why I'm thinking this way. And that is because the word Hades per Plato's Republic in the, uh, in the dialogue of Cratylus, Hades' secret, secret name that almost nobody knows about, it just gets whispered in the side notes. His secret name is the knower of all things noble. And for all of the noble gases to consummate to a nine, where Hades is hiding in the position of the nine, just flips my brain open in ways I was not trained to, to operate on. But there's something fascinating about the fact that all of the noble gases were called noble gases. Uh, Many of their numbers add up to a nine. They were hidden elements that were late arrivals, late discoveries. Their name is like secret strange arrival. And uh, Hades has dominion over all things noble and all things hidden. So there's something super plutonic Hades, this hidden, unseen, dimensional realm about the noble gases. Yeah, this is weird. It comes so it comes from a German word of Edelgas, and that's where the noble gases come from. Apparently, I haven't heard. This is all new to me. So, yeah. so let me just ask you: How did you get onto this thread, dude? Were you just like staring at a periodic table one day? Um, <laughs> was this like some research that you had just was vibing with, like? How the hell did did Gabe get onto you know like the nines and the noble gases and the equilibrium and then that turns into enneagrams like how do those connections start? Can you even trace back to the original seed of where all that started? <laughs> yes, it's quite a road. Get because on the couch, bro. Take take a seat right, on the all couch. Right. <laughs> all right, all right, yeah. Because we did. I don't have the little the clock, but whatever. You're asleep. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Uh, so it started zodiacally with a fascination of the idea of what's called the Roman fasti calendar was a nine month calendar system with 40 days. Okay. So it's eight day weeks. They're labeled a through H, which is like, aha. (laughs) And the eight is a super, very sacred number, but eight day long weeks make a whole different calendar fall out of that division system. But the Roman fasti is basically 40-day months uh, divided into nine segments. And it's not perfectly 40 for each segment because they were uh, seeding holidays for the sake of buying and trading goods at the, at the seams, at all of the, the connection points between months they would actually shut down and have sacrifice days and then pop back into action for the next cycle. So this fasty calendar, this Roman fasty calendar had a, a whole different nature to it. And that number 40 just rings to me. It rings so powerfully because of all the 40 days and 40 nights and all the 40s of, the, of completion of the Bible and the Kabbalistic four reduces to a one. So, uh, so many aspects of the idea of dividing the night sky differently just uh, kind of drew me in with curiosities on top of curiosities. Like, what would that mean? And then, of course, I'm always holding space for the idea that 
you know, the Dow Jones, D-O-W, that's the dogs of war, right? The D-O-W. I think the D-O-W is operating on a whole different uh, standard, time standard, standing in red, S-T-A-N-D-A-R-D. Um, and I think they, it would be fascinating if they're still using the Roman fasti calendar covertly. And so while we're all looking at the, the moon in the months in these measurements, that there might be some other measurement being observed in the background. So I've just always held the space for that. Um, and then I found the Enneagram uh, as a completed circle divided into nine sacred segments. And then I just started studying Enneagram and experimentally down the road, I placed the uh, tarot cards onto the Enneagram and portal started opening up. And now I know the answer to everything and the life. And it's more than 42. So you got the answer to everything. How much does it cost? Like what's the, <laughs> what's the entrance fee, bro? I got to start figuring out my, my fee schedule for sure, man. Some of the things that, uh, that the system I've developed provide me with, uh, is exciting invigorating uh you know it's inspired so often um but at the same time it can uh it's kind of scary it's kind of scary it definitely uh, uh generates a uber synchronist worldview i'll say that is this something in your opinion that that can change you by just like half hour you know sit down for a half hour six hundred dollars <laughs> you'll you'll leave and your life will be changed or is this like I have to change my entire mindset and spend, you know, years of self-discovery and and figuring it out that way? Like, what's where, where's the quick yeah. version of this? Well, like, let's say by the end of yeah. me talking to you, I want to walk away way more enlightened than I was when I started. Uh, well, there's a few, you know, there are some courses uh, online that are in, a, in like three hours or so. You'll get a basic idea. I got some books I bought. Uh, the Wisdom of the Enneagram by Don Richard Riso and Russ Hudson. Uh, that's one book that I've learned a lot out of. And then I'm also still cracking into this one called Rapid Story Development, How to Use the Enneagram Story Connection to Become a Master Storyteller by Jeff Lyons. And, yeah, and so these are good books if anybody wants to get into it. And, you know, I do... Uh, it does have a uh, a place in other cultures as well. That is something to uh, to really get into. Uh, Gurchiff is one of the known masters of the Enneagram. He says that it came from a Sufi sect known as the Beekeepers, which is fascinating. There is a bee uh, beehive constellation in Cancer um, that led me down into the Chariot card and so many other discoveries of what Gurchiff was getting on there. Um, so Gurchiff is another name you're going to run into with this work. Uh, but it, in, in in your question about could just like a couple hours of work with it, it could change things in really neat ways very quickly. For example, you will it gives people like a roadmap or a a blocking. Like imagine yourself as a, a theater director. You can look back at events that happened in your life, like the the play, like a this is a life review moment, and you go back into a uh, thing that happened in your life, and actually the the drama is adhering to a blocking, uh, a, a mathematical, uh, what's the word, a choreograph. This is a choreograph. And the dynamics in your family and the relationships that you had in that event are actually going to be very uh, 
very transparent when you look at them through uh, what the Enneagram tells us about our relationship to the people around us and our habits. When we get, when you get around a person who has more of a feeling vibe and you're more of a thinking vibe, you're going to resonate into, uh, I want to say resonate into corners, but that sounds like you're trapped. You should never be trapped or stuck, but it puts you at a, uh, on the spectrum in relation to each other at a harmonious value. We'll say it that way. Now, like where's the ancient aspect of this? Cause I'm just looking at the, the wiki article, which we all know is, is the ultimate source of truth and don't mm-hmm. you dare violate it. We're not, we're not <laughs> trying to violate, uh, you know, common yeah. knowledge here. Right. Right. But it says that it was principally derived from a Bolivian psycho-spiritual teacher, Oscar Icazo, from the 1950s and a Chilean dude from the 1970s. Um, but then it says, influenced by earlier teachings by Gurdjieff and the Fourth Way tradition in the first half of the 20th. So what's that, like the uh, the 1950s, the 1940s or something? But But yeah. does it go back further than that? Oh, this thing is so much older than they're going to tell anybody. Like... And, and now I made him and I'm making a claim. I am making a claim, uh, a leap of, a, of faith of sorts, but I have tested this thing out and I can find it in stories. I found it in Plato's symposium in a beautiful, fascinating way. Um, but also, you know, there's a fella, um, let me think of his name, Francois de la Roche Fajol. He's this French fucker. And he's like the godfather of psychology. And he has this handbook uh, that is like, it's like one of the, uh, it's a collection of sayings that he has about human nature. Um, and if you read his collection of sayings about human nature, he's describing how the Enneagram works without showing you the Enneagram. So this, uh, I think the the Enneagram is born out of the French Salon movement. And I think that they, I think it was born out of the French Salon movement. I think. Everything we have about uh, Greek history went through the the hands of the encyclopedists there. And so I don't trust that the symposium or the Plato's Republic is uh, is authentic to its time. I think there's so many fingerprints on it. We have to date it much more recently than 2,500 years ago. There's so much influence on Plato's Republic. I'm just saying, I think what I'm picking up on with the Enneagram comes through the French encyclopedists. Uh, who had an antagonistic group whose name is basically Enneagram in French. The encyclopedias, their public antagonists were called like the Enneographers. Like the ennui graphia. Ennui is like laziness, hanging around, got spare time, you're bored, and they're gonna, so they're going to write. So the word the, of the opposition of the scholastics in, uh, or no, the encyclopedists in France their opposition was basically named the Enneagramists, is, was what their name is. So I can test this thing against stories that go back 2,500 years, but I can't, for the life of me, believe that it's actually that old. I think this is all kind of coming out of uh, much more early minds, we'll say that. I noticed that there's like th- there's a very particular pattern with this thing. And it's got the nine points, like you mentioned, right? But I mean, you know, maybe it's the the twenty twenty three in me that's like, 
I don't fit in one of these nine labels. You know, I'm a, I'm a 9.3 or I'm a 42, you know, it's like, do you think that every, like, does this mean that any mood you've ever been in your entire life can all fit on this chart somewhere or is that oversimplifying it? No, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, you could think of it as a rainbow, as a, a as a spectral rainbow that closes in on itself and that your emotions are like a color wheel of sorts. Uh, and that is one way to uh, think of it. But the cool thing is those lines that skip around, you know, the internal, there's the heptad is the, I call that the spider that is mounting on the triangle there. Um, the, those relationships are actually uh, emotional and they're behavioral. I'll say that they are behavioral uh, tendencies or propensities. So you will move towards, uh, there we go, like a seven will move towards a one in when there's a carrot, but they'll move towards a five if there's a stick. And then the five will move towards a seven if there's a carrot, but move towards an eight if there's a stick. So you'll either go left or right in your decision-making naturally. We want to. Let's let's do the five and seven and eight one. Can you give me a practical example? Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a five right now. What does that mean to me? And then what kind of catalyst or decision comes my way that sends yeah. me into a seven or an eight? And what are what are seven and eights in that context? Okay, I, I think I can get out of the book and get this because it is a, it is very... I got, I got the numbers here if you want to see what, what those are. So uh, a, five, a five, it says, is investigator, observer, yeah. stingy. Uh, what is this like? Uh, a like Ebenezer Scrooge or something? A miser? Yeah, that's. I think that's Ebenezer Scrooge right there. Yes, so, you got. Yeah, and then so a we're seven. E- we're Ebenezer right now. Uh huh. Now a seven is um it's is an enthusiast. Enthusiast. Right? Yep, or an epicure, and they have a shadow of glutton, and so the enthusiast um um they are constantly taking in. Uh, or uh, constantly engaged. They're not reserved. They uh, they they are highly active and uh, kind of have a, a a beautiful extroverted potential. But then you can already think that the uh, the number five is kind of reserved. The uh, kind of the anode to the enthusiast. So they have that uh, that relationship. And then the number eight is a challenger or a controller with a shadow of lust. And so a number five uh, between a seven and an eight in their, uh, depending on if they're stressed out or if they're being enticed, will gravitate, look to the eight in a stress situation, but in a positive situation, they'll look to the seven. Let me make sure I'm getting my arrows in the right direction there. Well, it, it sure looks like it. I mean, just yeah? based on what we're seeing here. Yeah. Between yeah. The five, the seven and the eight. Yes. And so these arrows, it's called the two arrow theory. It's also called the integration and disintegration theory. And once, if you can just get to that level of seeing how the arrows work, how a seven, how this, how this cleaving, this is cleaving, we're being clever, right? And so when you're clever, you can see in both directions, you can see that like, oh, it means this and it doesn't mean that. And you know what you know, and you know what you don't know, and you know what you know you don't know. And you know what you don't know that you don't know. <laughs> Are you quoting Donald Rumsfeld out, dude? <laughs> so, so yeah. The in, if you study Enneagram, I say everybody should at least get to the point 
where they do a dry run like you're trying to do now it move through uh see how the logic of the seven goes to the five goes to the eight and then if and then if the shit hits the wall the energy of decision making goes against goes the other way around it would reverse go to the five go to the seven seven would go to the one so the whole thing is uh it's it's highly functional in decision making uh stratagem and uh, i'm trying to see so like a one would be a perfectionist i guess yeah um so i feel like maybe that's where i'm at right now on some projects i'm I'm being like overly perfectionist about them so yeah start, start there yeah, and then that means that my options are seven, yep. which we already yep. went over, which is uh-huh. planning and wisdom and work. Yeah, so yep. that's I guess that's one way to get out of it is just by plowing through. And then what's four? Uh, four. Romantic. That doesn't sound good. If if <laughs> if I'm a perfectionist, I definitely don't want to lean towards romanticism because that means it never gets done. And the exact <laughs> opposite of that would be to well, be industrious and plan it out and. Uh-huh. Working out, right? Well, now uh, the n- number four, they do. They call it a tragic romantic. It's also called an individual. It has a shadow of envy. Um, let me just give you this story. This is cool. Number seven is Zeus, and um, uh, Zeus has Athena born out of his head. Athena is the number one, and so the line from the seven to the one is the birthing of a brainchild. Athena is the brainchild of Zeus. So that line from the seven to the one is Greek mythology incarnate. And so you're going on your project right now is a brainchild coming out of your head and you're in the one position. You're giving it Athena chin. You're giving it attention. You're paying Athena chin. Athena Athena shine. Her eyes were silver. So she pays attention. Her eyes were silver because it's reflecting her father's, uh, his hair. She's always over his shoulder, but she's also paying attention. She's in the word. Athena is in the word attention. So you're so spot on to say that you're like perfecting it right now. And you're going to get out of the gates and launch. You're ready to launch. And that that is uh, kind of like for, you know, Venus coming out of the half shell. Uh, she's uh, garnering envy from everybody. She's being admired. So when you start launching your show, you know, it's like you're 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 taking one tit out and showing it to the world. You're going to be exposed, bro. Well, that's not until <laughs> episode 100. We're, we're saving that one. <laughs> but now here's another thing. Now, there is also movement, uh, just clockwise movement as well. Uh, those internal heptad jumps are, are really what make you think uh, in what gives you a Enneagram oriented perspective but there's also you can matriculate just from the one down to the two down to the three down to the four you can that's also part of process as well so you're right you are on a one perfecting things and i think the uh the launch forward will actually be a two and that's a giver with a shadow of pride that's actually the government uh hera with the shadow of um pridefulness because she's it's Hera. It's her perso- personality. But th- that's what you're going to do. You're going to be giving. You're going to forgive yourself for any mistakes you make, and you're just going to go out and do it. You're going to start putting out the work. And number two personalities, they give uh, a little excessively. They're often overprepared. They, uh, they're depicted with backpacks, uh, like too many supplies on uh, burdening them. 
Okay, so like so like nineties. Uh, yeah, I see a, a, a plane going by, but like I'm thinking nineties comic book characters that got the pouches all over the place. They're like uh, maybe a little. They're compensating a little bit, I assume. Yep, it's. Uh, I think of Chewbacca. Chewbacca was a like an overhelper, overextender. He's constantly, you know, doing way too much. And uh, and his only sound, his only words are like the Charlie Brown sound of frustration. <laughs> That's all he ever says. <laughs> he is a quintessential number two. Uh, now is that forever? Still, is this he's just a number two forever because he's like a movie character frozen in time? Like, are there people out there that are frozen as a number two forever? They can be. That's what that's one of the dangers of the Enneagram. It's like so Gurchev talks about it so much. He's he just always brings back the fact that it has to move. You can't get stuck. You, the, the, because that's Medusa. You'll get you'll get turned to stone. You'll you'll ca- calcify and get stuck in a, in your habits. So you got to keep this thing moving. You got to face the challenges. Don't move into your comfort zone. Move into your uncomfort zone. You know, there's there are oftentimes good reason to choose the hard path and go into disintegration on purpose. You know, for your own dialectic. There's all there's another version of this here where so this is kind of funny because it reminds me in some ways of NLP, not not the Enneagrams and NLP are completely related, but that when we I was looking at this Enneagram thing, it says very clearly that um, right here, the Enneagram is promoted in business management and spirituality contexts. And it's like a NLP is it's used in business management and marketing and sales and then like self-helpy stuff or maybe even hypnosis and it's so weird how when people say you know they don't want you to know about this here's a good example i don't want i don't really necessarily know who the they is out there but whenever you see things that are just promoted for like business or wackadoos right or like politicians or wackadoos that's kind of the um the the trivium that's where they dropped rhetoric because rhetoric is such an important thing Maybe if you don't even want to use it to understand when it's being used against you and you only learn rhetoric these days if you want to be a politician slash snake oil salesman slash regular salesman. And that's kind of the only place where it fits anymore, right? They're not teaching kids rhetoric anymore. So I think this is a a really good example. When you see something like that, Enneagrams and NLP is kind of a catch-all term, but when you see those things and it's like, oh, I can either go to this stupid Marriott convention and pay $600 and learn about Enneagrams of my personality and, you know, they sell me crystals and stuff. There might actually be something to that if you see business dudes there as well. You know what I mean? Whenever like those those two worlds collide, I think yep. that there might be something there. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, I have learned that uh, particularly the Jesuit order has an affinity for the Enneagram in corporate America. Uh, that's that's open. It's not even secretive. Um, and I have a theory I have not flushed out having to do with the nine torments of the Christ. Um, I, I believe the Jesuits are sitting on the like nine tools or nine implements that were integral to the crucifixion, the passion scene. And I don't know what they are, but I think each one of them is a uh, a part of the shadow of the Enneagram. And so my theory, my grand theory is that the Enneagram is the homunculus of the collective and they through drama and oh, don't you, know, you say that word around here. It's a fan <laughs> word, my friend. Tumunculus. 
Um, you said you said the nine the nine tortures. I see fifteen tortures. Is it is there a separate list? Well, this is a this was such a thin thread. I'd never really dug out, but it was um. It, I've never heard of this, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It ha- it's it's the nine tools or the nine impl- I when I thought of it, I uh, and I did. I looked it up. I don't have it flagged. But when I thought of it, I thought of a Masonic tracing board right away, you know, because there's all those those gadgets and gadgets laying around on the ground. Nope. You interview know? over. Interview yeah. over. <laughs> but like, if I think about it, like, okay, let me. I'll I'll say this. So, when I put the Enneagram onto Plato's Symposium, I think I found its origin, I, and I, I can't I, I can't confirm that. Maybe I don't know. Maybe someday I'll have something but I just kind of got to go with what is really heavily hitting me in a thousand different ways. Uh, kind of like when I found out how to divide nine on my own, right? So uh, the number one position in the Plato Symposium is the rhetorician. The number one position is uh, Phaedrus. And Phaedrus uh, has his own dialogue with, with uh, Socrates uh, separate where they talk about the art of rhetoric. And so the number one position, the uh, reformer, the perfectionist with a shadow of wrath, its personality is embodied in the spirit of everything you could learn about Phaedrus. And he has a particular muse, one of nine muses. You see how this system is locking into very, very fascinating order. The definition of order is the nine heavenly realms. The first thing we do is speak when we come into this world. The first word in the Iliad is wrath. Arg. Arg. All rights reserved. Charlie Brown. <laughs> so Phaedrus is number one, and he is a rhetorician. His muse is Polyhymnia. And Polyhymnia is badass. She's so badass. She's always leaning on her elbow like she's bored. Uh, she's a master of uh, geometry, dance, uh, and rhetoric. Rhetoric is her jam. She of many talents. And her name has the word poly and the word many in her, in her name. I think she is telling us that the people who wrote Plato's Symposium were many language mastered. They were polyhymnia. They had the master of many languages. And they put it in her name by using two different forms of the word many, poly and many. You need to slow, you need to slow the fuck down, dude. Bro, this is getting, you're getting crazy right now. It, this whole thing is on a level that I, you're right. I do have to slow down. I thank you. <laughs> thank you. I need that. I need people to tell me to slow the fuck down, buddy. Cause yeah, it is such a fascinating project. It's like, it's so much bigger than me. I feel like I'm self-initiating. And if I had a mentor, he'd be like, nah, 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 you're reading ahead. You're reading ahead. Slow the fuck down. <laughs> but in Plato's Symposium, the number one is uh, uh, Phaedrus with the muse of polyhymnia. And so I go through the other speakers in Plato's Symposium and their muses become very obvious. And it turns out it's not a circle of dudes laying around talking about being gay. It's muses teasing the reader into an alluring affection for Sophie. You know, it's a ring of sofas. These are the sovereigns. 
And they really are uh, seducing the reader into deeper inquisition, into the meaning of uh, civic design, really. Plato's Symposium is called the touchstone of all cultures, and it is civic design. Uh, how to lay out a city is also threaded through uh, that, that dialogue. Is it good for getting like uh, advanced SimCity tips by any chance? No, does it, does it tell you to like where to place? No. <laughs> well, well, you oh. know they they say that the uh, I forget who this quote is from, but the first uh, building in any metropolis is the museum. It's the first thing you make, and uh, we talk about uh, the Library of Alexandria. <clears throat> Wrong. It wasn't a library; it was a museum, and that's what I did. I burned down all the words of Plato's Symposium, and what was left standing was. A ring of nine lovely, lovely ladies. That's that's actually a really interesting observation that the Library of Alexandria wasn't just a library because, yeah, it's it sounds like it was just this huge place with lots of books everywhere. But it was books, it was inventions, it was you know pottery, it was it was things ancient to them that they still revered. It wasn't just books. If it was only books, it would have been super boring. But that's what it always sounds like, right? It's the same thing with math, dude. It was like that boring ass uh, table of nines. And here's how you do it. You just memorize it on this little chart. Uh, but there's like a cooler answer to it out there. So, I mean, I don't know. But you're, you're blowing my mind with a lot of this stuff. The museum, you're, you're correct on. Because as I always like to point out, if you're playing Civilization the game, Typically, you're going for like a culture win. If you if you're got it on easy mode, maybe you go for the war win. But in the advanced versions of it, you're almost always going for culture win, which means exactly that. Every time you found the new city, you plop down a museum there, so you got some slots to throw your artifacts and attract other people, and then you get their famous scientists and their famous artists. They just come to you because you're the cultural center, and you don't even have to really build up your defenses although it's it's definitely good to have some nukes just just in case in case gandhi starts feeling frisky <laughs> man wow this is great this is, i can't wait to tell you release this and i can come back to this conversation because post-production revelations are the best there's something really gorgeous right here in this okay so i'm on a new theory that uh, is kind of alarming. I, I try to talk about it in ways that doesn't get anybody in the streets. But I've discovered... What the hell does, the hell does that mean? <laughs> just wait, man. Just, okay. This, okay. This okay. Okay. Fascinating. This is a fascinating theory. I'm, I'm still flushing this out. I learned about ennui. E-N-N-U-I is the French term for boredom. And Voltaire, they all spoke about spoke about it, but they would describe like the cool kid who's got nothing to do and he's too cool for school. He was on we. He was dripping on on we. He's got the bling kind of thing going, you know. Like, uh, there's, yeah, I bet you there's some French. If I do like French rap, there's probably some French rap songs out there called On We. Yes, maybe now not. There's... If not, you, someone needs to get on it. So, <laughs> so this concept, um. It's so fascinating. I'm still learning. I still have much, always, always the teacher and the learner and the student and the master. Okay. So here's my theory, buddy. Ennui is bait for the muses. 
So the muses are city slicker technology. They're all soft-handed. There's no, there's no farmer muse. Uh, yeah, there's no farmer muse. There's no industrial muse. They're like all artists and kind of softies. Uh, intellectualism, you know? Uh, so they, they belong in the you're central... Telling, they're all limousine liberals? Is that what you're telling me? You got, you got it, man. That's the, and again, I'm, uh, I'm trying to be as middle of the road about this as possible but so the muse is like you were saying they belong in the central hub with the city and meanwhile it's that outer ring is where the military expansionism and all the uh agriculture is all on the outer ring but the center hub does the minimum amount of work in uh and it has all the lure it draws people in this is the pilgrimage uh the hajj all these things the chettle that the knights templar need to make sure you get to and from the city safely you know it's all systematized the muses are designed to, they can, okay, they consume, like when you have spare time, you muse. When you have ennui, when you're bored, when you're leaning like polyhymnia and you're thinking about how, what you're going to, how you're going to conquer the world, you're musing. And ennui is what draws them in. If you have the spare time in your life, then you're, asking the muses to come and play so you're having these thoughts and there are nine muses with nine different orientations like depending on your strengths or your aptitudes right kind of plays into multiple intelligence theory in a strange way um but here's my theory they supplemented an overdose of ennui when they locked down the fucking world and if you militarize your thinking just a little bit ever so delicately the muses become a bit of a harvesting system. So if they make everybody not working, now you have idle hands, devil's work, rebel spirit, you're pissed off, why the fuck I got laid off? And now there's a harvest of the ennui, of all this boredom. I said it back when they did the lockdowns. I, when, uh, when they shut down my work, I was like, oh, that's the worst thing they could have do, done is give me time to think. <laughs> Here's Those motherfuckers, the podcasters. <laughs> they gave me fucking time to think they done fucked up. But I'm looking at it now, uh, since then, and I'm like, oh, shit. If they know how ennui works, it's a very ornery way to harvest the arts, to harvest all of artistic output. And we all saw that happen. All the NFT thing. And then, boom, they smack us with the artificial art, the AI art. And now it's like... There's a new muse on the scene and she's fucking everything up. And this is the AI. This is the 10th muse. This is the, the Deus Ex Mechina, Deus Ex Machine, Deus Ex Mechina. This is the God Sex Machine of AI. And so something is strange going on in the realm of the muses, where the old classic nine are up against this new 10th muse. And I don't really have a grip on what that means in the cosmic landscape of egregores, but it is a fascinating fucking time to have a clue what ennui and boredom means to the muses who are, you could say the voice, the still small voice of what inspires us all to have spirit and lead a spiritual life. So are, are you pro or anti AI? Are you like, are you on the spectrum or are you just sort of like, wheel of fortuning it and hanging out in the in the middle at the epicenter you know the the what do they call it the enlightened centrist is that you or or are you taking a stand on one side wow wow 
fuck, can I do both? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, dude, I think so. No, you know, I am a Luddite by nature, my true. Like, if I were going to be co- stuck in the Enneagram, if I were going to go against Gurchev's advice and just get stuck, I am totally a Luddite. Uh, but I, but I also at the same time have to try to stay much as much of a centrist as I can. So I am going very slowly, very slowly into the new age, uh, bit by bit. Uh, but I'm going to do it with and drag my feet every step of the way. Yeah, kicking <laughs> and screaming. <laughs> what what yeah, is man. the luddite on the enneagram? What number would would a luddite be? Do you think a nine? A nine. So at the, uh-huh. the very top, right? Yep, yep. It's like. Uh, Kind of, uh, yeah, slothful or indolent, refusing to go along, uh, almost. But here's another hazard of the nine is they say they just go along too much until uh, things become uh, become problematic. The peacemaker. Peacemaker. Avoiding yeah, conflicts. I fall, yeah, I fall in that one a lot. But but at least now I know what to uh, where my growth is. My growth is in conflict, you know, so... Uh, just recently I had to, yeah, I do this very often now, uh, go, you know, go right at the, the topic head on. I feel like I can't not see this. So I have to ask it. Tesla's cryptic thing about all you have to understand is the three, six, nine and the vortex math. And this Enneagram kind of is giving me that vortex math vibe. And I can't help but notice that three, six, nine they all correlate directly to each other, almost in like an infinite loop. Whereas every other number, you kind of like get a chance to jump around a little bit. And you mentioned that a little bit. Have yeah. you, I mean, I'm, I already know the answer is yes, but <laughs> Gabe, have you ever sort of, you know, correlated some of this to Tesla's three, six, nine quote? And if so, like, what, what have you made of that? Oh man. Yes, absolutely. Positively. So, uh, L O R D. L is a three. O is a six. R is a nine. D is a delta. It is the triangle. The word Lord is the three, six, nine triangle. Is this this English Gamatria we're talking about right now? Yeah. uh, My favorite is ordinal reduced. I use generally three. I stick to three. I know the other ones are awesome, especially Sumerian, but. I stick to ordinal, ordinal reduced, and I save septenary for the end because it's got that sacrificial missing two numbers. Uh, so I do ordinal, ordinal reduced, and septenary are my three prime ciphers. And L O R D in ordinal reduced is a three, six, nine, four. But that four is the triangle, it's the delta of the. I, of I, I don't have ordinal reduced yet. I'm going to have to add that. Oh, wait, here we go. Here's a reduction three, six, nine, four. Yes, yes. And now that's, uh, again, like you were telling me, slow the fuck down, bro. Uh, I have a hard time because I do this so quickly. I have those three uh, gematriological lenses, and I, I, I see all words through those lenses all the time now. Uh, it's a crazy instinct that's developed in me. And so I'm glad you draw me back to like substantiate what cipher I'm using. That is important. Well, and, and I'm just mentioning this too because if if you don't know about this, Gabe, this is occultdecode.com. As you can see here, powered by Paranoid American. It is a free gematria calculator. And check this, Damn. check this out. This is what the other ones don't have. Let's say that you wanted to see all other words that match Lord That's, and reduction. 
Or you said, That's you know, septenary. Let's just, here, check this out. If I go down here and click find matches, it's going to show us everything that matches either the 13 or the 22 and which ones it is and everything. This is this is my gift to the Gamachu world. I don't understand it. I'm learning. You're teaching me how it works, but I've got the calculator because I understand the math behind it. I just don't understand like the the occult math behind it. So, man, yeah. I'm so happy that I've I've go oh, look at this uh, Amazon Com Inc. Bam, that's twenty. It matches the Lord. So oh wow, <laughs> wow. So um, I should say this uh, media. So for one, I'm I can't wait to get on there because that that's my favorite feature is the matches. That is my favorite feature. I feel like they kind of flushed that away in the past year or so. The ability to find matches easy. Oh yeah, check this out, dude. We got like you can click. I wouldn't recommend that you click every single one because it'll take forever and like the ex- the browser will explode. But yeah, I'll I'll do find matches for or uh, we'll do Gabe. Let's see what what it says for Gabe. Gaber. Yeah, I got a date calculator on here. Uh, where you can you can segment any like two dates and get all these and then um, here's a little uh, trick that no one knows about this. If you click on the moon of any date, it'll load all the events in history that are relevant to that specific date. So I clicked on <laughs> May second, nineteen forty. Look at look at all these different and these are legit. Uh, Bill Clinton announces accurate GPS access. No one knows about this feature. I'm actually just kind of like announcing it live for the first time here. So a little trick. All you got to do is click on any of these moons. Uh, But anyways, let me, let me get back up to here. And I just wanted to show, here's all the the matches for Gabe, right? Across all the (laughs) different ciphers. So, and then the, the cool thing too, is these little bookmarks. So if you wanted to like start comparing some, let's say I wanted to like compare, you know, I'm just clicking a bunch of random ones. Then they all will, um, they'll all show up right down here in the uh, saved phrases. So it's like a quick way to like compare all of them together, and you can add and remove. You can even like click save, and it'll save an image. You can click clipboard and paste it into Photoshop or whatever. So anyway, my my gift to you, Gabe. Let me know if there's any other features or anything that that you want for this. But okay, let's get back to why uh, you use ordinal reduction what because i talked to a bunch of people that use different ones some people are like mm-hmm. all in on chaldean because it's supposed to be like the og um yeah. some people use different the only thing that i'm looking at it from a numbers point of view and it seems that if you want to match lots of numbers together reduction is one of the easier ones because they all stay within a very small range of total numbers whereas like satanic or latin or like you know fibonacci is a crazy one like once you get to a word that's more than five or six letters like nothing else is going to match to it because it's such a a huge number so why is reduction your go-to reverse ordinal reduction specifically uh i think of it as uh having uh higher field application uh, which is a fancy way of saying because it's easy to remember (laughs) <laughs> because it is simple um and um now i do i respect all those other ones they are right there is stuff going on on the chaldean and these uh, these other ciphers there's a lot going on on those um but i i see those as like more of a advanced more dow jones kind of investors language you know when you're getting into those ciphers um i'm i'm kind of wor- 
working from a mundane worldview. I'm like kind of uh, consider myself like a, a guardian of the underdogs, you know, uh, the, the sheep wolf, so to say. So I want to find the ciphers that they're being exposed to. But if I was in the investor's world and do it like, you know, those high rollers, I would be in the more complex ciphers for sure. Oh, and also, okay, two more things. Uh, because the Enneagram is a one through nine, it kind of has to be my go-to cipher. It has to have that reduction value. So the reduced of ordinal will uh, is why that becomes my compass, right? It has to come back to the baseline of one to nine reduction-wise. Um, and then the other reason, oh, I had another good reason. Oh, yes. Okay, set then this is more of a septenary. But uh, I happen to have learned a long time ago that uh, Shakespeare and playwrights will use alliteration to invoke magical squares. And that is a really fun one. I think it's How more. So? You got you to explain that a little bit more because yeah. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, man. I think this is a septenary technique. I think this is where septenary really comes to life. Um and outshines uh, ordinal reduced. And that is because like, if I say world war, WW is alliteration. I'm making a five by five in septenary. Uh, or is that right? Yeah. Yep. Five by five. five. WW is five and five. And that is the magical square of Mars. Mars is the God of war. And so, all of the WW1, WW2, those are Mars, 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 Mars. Every time we WW, we're Marsing. And so uh, uh, in the spirit of the magical square we invoke, it adheres to the spirit of the word that we originally were working in. So when we say world war, and we're saying this alliterated five by five magical square of Mars, we're actually unpacking the magical square into language by saying world war. And so th that system is is very septenary uh, uh, dependent to pull out magical squares from alliteration. So I I will use septenary for that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that I hope that's helpful somewhat. I don't know how we got back into math. We started at math. We ended at math. Speaking of of one to nine, I've got this segment. Usually it goes zero to ten. I didn't tell you about this. You wanted to be be a surprise. So normally I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions of, or I'm going to make statements rather, and you're going to judge them based on how much you agree with those statements. So normally like a zero would be, you don't agree at all. That's a psyop that's BS. And then a 10 would be, you know, I'm absolutely convinced of this. This is my tribe. You know, I'll convince you of it too. Well, let's do one through nine, just since we're already in the Enneagram space, right? <laughs> right so on. Are, are, are you ready for this? Okay, uh, I, do not actually, I do not consent, but I'm always ready. So first, <laughs> okay, actually here, I've got a, a cool little clip here. Hey, conspiracy buffs, I double dare you to take some PCP, the Paranormal Conspiracy Probe. On your marks, get set, and go! All right, we're doing some PCP. Question number one, Slick Dissident, are you a cop? Fuck no. If you're a cop, you have to tell me. Dude, I this will is... show you my dick right now. Okay, okay, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. We're gonna say we'll save that for the uh, the after uh, after dark version. 
So I'm going to make these statements. You tell me one through nine how much you believe some of these. I'm going to jump around. I don't have a set number. I'm going to do it until I get bored with you. Humans has successfully landed and stepped foot on the moon. Oh, yeah. What, what are you at? A nine? Oh, a one? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a... Mm, I'm a nine. I'm a nine. Okay, yep, we're going to uh, get back. But, we're but, they, get that. but, that's not, but that's not what we saw. They didn't show us. All right, we'll but, get yeah. into it. We'll okay, into okay, it, okay. <laughs> Rep, reptilian humanoid shapeshifters are real. Hmm. Goodness gracious. I'll go with seven. Okay. Lee Harvey Oswald was one of the individuals responsible for JFK's assassination. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, let's throw all this Huxley and C.S. Lewis in the mix, too. I mean, they did them. They reaped them all on the same day. <laughs> all right. All right. Don't don't be don't be overachieving here, man. Action credit. The Mandela effect is real. Like there are there are multiple mm. realities where Bernstein and Bernstein bears both exist. Mm. Okay. Or is it just like a misspelling from like an old print run? Right. Right. All right. This is okay. Uh, Mandela. Yeah, you, effect- you just need a number, yeah. dude. We just need yeah, a number. Man. I'm gonna go with. Uh, shoot, it's a nine. It is real, but the mul- the multiverse is lies. Lies create parallel realities. All right, and so, we'll get into that. We'll get into all that. Right, get, all right. get, off, get off the soapbox for a second. <laughs> Michael Jackson had a legit clone. Yep. So a nine? Uh, yeah. Or, uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure if we saw his clone, but he he tried something. And whether it lived or not, like they were putting out little homunculus mics for sure. Mozart was killed because he exposed Masonic secrets in the magic flute. Wow, bro. Yeah. Uh, and shit with his dad too. Like, wow. Huge mystery of history. Yes. Nine. Okay. Well, okay. Pharmaceutical companies have already found a cure for the big C. Oh yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. That's, uh, the Socrates mystery of mysteries. Nine. Uh, Total uh, full spectrum dominance nine. Okay, okay, absolutely. You can't get higher than that. You could just say ten too. <laughs> Elvis Presley faked his death. Hmm. Or did he actually die on, die on the toilet from like a peanut butter? I forgot what the whole story was, but. Uh. No, I think he really did die. Uh, his death was a Belphegor ritual, which you and I have talked on Belphegor, but the dying Don't on the toilet... you start getting into math again, bro. <laughs> the, toilet, the toilet is so Belphegor, it's hilarious, which is nine on the Enneagram. So my answer is nine. He really died. Uh, they, needed that, they needed that King Juju for sure. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna transition a little bit because I because I want to dis- I want to discuss some of these more than just numbers with you, and I, I know that you're chomping at the bit to get beyond numbers too. So I want to know th- if you think that Aleister Crowley in particular, or anyone in a circle, but do you think that they successfully summoned a actual demon at any point? And you can translate demon into meaning like a Greek daemon or whatever. But I I want to know like. 
did someone have supernatural powers or abilities or something supernatural objectively happened and it's not just someone changed their mind and had an epiphany and they had like a personal revelation. I want to know, like, did someone summon a demon and the demon was like, I'm going to blow that building up or I'm going to shoot a laser out of my finger. You get what I'm, I'm getting at, right? Like, I don't have to paint such a specific picture that you can dance out of it. Has someone summoned a freaking <laughs> demon? I don't know how not to dance out of it, Thomas. <laughs> I'm like, trying to put you in a corner here, dude. I want to know. Dude. Dude. You are. Okay, like, so, like, to, to, so it drawing. Can be Slimer, or it can be the exorcist, <laughs> but it, it can't just be like you get consumed by your own dark thoughts and you create your own personal <laughs> app. I want to know, like, is there a, like, and here's another version of the question I usually follow with people. If demons were real, let's let's say that your answer is yes, someone's someone demon. You can actually answer it for yourself without me putting that in there. But like, would you have to be an evil person? Like, you have to be born evil. You have to be an Ed Gain. Do you have to be like a Dahmer and create it, or can you be completely pure of heart? Order five or six books off Amazon that are like you know printed on demand off of a Xerox, never never even touches a human hand. Right? You click order on some Alistair Crowleyan formulaic you know spell guide. It prints out by a machine. It gets sent to you by a machine. No human ever touches it. You open it. You read it. Can you summon a demon from that? Like it is as digital as you can possibly. Can I just download a PDF of this is like, a this magical is like, ritual and summon a demon from it? This is like Schrodinger's Crowley. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. And especially the more that you allow yourself to not know about its origin. The, the more that it's randomized, you know, the more you're blindfolded from the extraction of the whatever is the more open to uh, uh, interpretive seeding of your own consciousness. Yes. Yeah. I think the questions are demons. I'm demanding. I'm demanding something to come out of you. I'm bull. I'm pulling forth like Socrates is a midwife of ideas. And so when I demand upon you to like uh, tell me, or if I tell you a story that's incomplete and I leave a part of it in uh, open to interpretation, I'm pulling forward your interpretation to fill in the blank of the story that I left. And so the all of these negative spaces of uh, of unknowing are what get dressed up and become manifestations of the psyche in many, so many, many, many ways. What do you think is uh, like, what would a demon be in this context then? If I, if you said someone could summon a legit demon and you're saying, mm -hmm. yes, they could, mm -hmm. like, what would that look like? Mm. Like, what's a practical, you know, like, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know yeah. this is, I know we're oversimplifying it, but like mm -hmm. little Timmy gets home from school, you know, he's, he's 13. He wears black eyeliner and black nail polish. And he thinks that he's like super edgelord, right? Mom and mm -hmm. dad aren't home. Can he just pop out like a book of Wicca and like, you know, burn some sage and, you know, like jerk off on a Eucharist and burn it. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden Beelzebub shows up and gives them the answers to tomorrow's <laughs> test or like what, like what would an actual ver Cause like, and like a non-humorous version, like uh, I think Charles Babbage, he claimed that he tried to summon the, the devil early on. He was like one of the, the forefathers of like, you know, computing and stuff. There's mm -hmm. been lots of examples of like technological people saying that they were poking with it. You know, they were trying to like hack the, the, the spiritual system. But yeah. like, what would it look like? Like, are they seeing Slimer pop up? Bro, 
isn't the sea urchin emergency that just unpacked out of E equals MC squared? I see you scared. Oh, do I got to put a beat back on? Are we freestyling again, dude? Dude, they just summoned a demon. Yo, yo. Crow, row. Nah. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Care, careful, careful. You're going you're gonna to get us in trouble, dude. <laughs> yeah, man, they did. They summoned something up with this power, this very powerful suggestion, you know, emergency is an, a phonetic anagram of sea urchin, you know, and there was an emergency of a sea urchin that just unpacked on everybody. And it's what's even, the sea urchin? What does that have to do with it? Like, I, I get the wordplay, but why, like, what's the sea urchin? Is it just because it sounds like emergency and now that's like a, a symbol for it? It's the CV artistic depiction is a sea urchin. Okay, I got you now. I got you. The one piece of context we had, the actual rubber meeting the road, was the only piece of the puzzle we didn't have. And this slow, if you can't tell, a little slow, but I got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the this also phonetically those sounds, the sea urchin emergency is also unpacked into the sounds of E equals MC squared. And E equals MC squared is actually a, a pentagram. E is a five. Uh, C is uh, three. Squared is nine. Multiply the five by the nine becomes a 45. Oh, man. Oh, it becomes a 36. 36 is the number of the circle. So the E is the pentagram. 36 ring is the circle around the pentagram. E equals MC squared is a pentagram, bro. And the whole thing unpacked into a C urchin emergent emergency. And there's something else in there about like a sacrifice. Like uh, the sacrifice is a anagram for like scary face and see the cure on the face. Like sea cure face. So everybody with their mask on was a sea cured face. They were a secured face. The whole fucking thing was sacrifice your breath to the spirit of this demon they summoned. And the whole thing is a sea urgent emergency that packs out at E equals MC squared because you believe fucking <laughs> right? So yeah, the crowning achievement of E equals MC squared just overthrew the world. And they summoned that demon and nobody realized that it just had to do with the shellfish prohibitions. Don't be so damn shellfish, y'all. You know what I mean? Carrie Mollusk. Carrie Mollusk. Dude, can you pull up a picture of Carrie Mollusk like out of images? Is this a I'm, person? I'm, I'm not familiar with the name. Oh, I'm sorry. I said it wrong. Uh, K-E-R-R-Y-M-U-S. L L E S I S U S U S Carrie Carrie Mo- Oh okay here you're gonna have to tell me because this is this is new to me I've I haven't even heard of this dude before is this it or are we talking to someone else yeah buddy we're we're about to watch the birthing of a new god watch this Venus on the half shell she comes walking out of the shellfish the prohibited food. You're not allowed to eat the shellfish. Don't eat the sea urchin, emergency sea urchin, because it'll poke your fingers. Might get penetrated. Look up uh, him on, this is the guy that invented the PCR test, right? Here comes Venus de Milo on the half shell, 
Go to images under his name. Oh, here, here. I, I'm, I'm in the wrong spot. What was his name? Carrie? Uh-huh. Carrie Mullis. And remember, we're talking about ego. This is a number four. This is number four on the Enneagram is the individual with the shadow of envy. This is Aphrodite being born out of the half shell. Hold on. There he is. Check him out with the surfboard. Check out that surfboard. He has been memed many times over with his many surfboard images. I don't think I believe that he was really even a surfer at all, but whatever oh, that, that is. Doesn't, that doesn't look real at all. It, yeah, there there are multiple images of him and the surfboard thing. I think I think that is a, a post production fabrication. Okay, so for one, he's Priapus, right? He's got a big giant phallic dick surfboard coming out of his crotch area. Uh, now, yeah, there's another one of him. Okay, now look up the Thoth deck Magus card. This is Carrie Magus. Birds like Venus de Milo on the half shell. The vanity of it all is so profound. Look at the fucking surfboard on the toes of this Magus card. No, oh, and, and there's, this, there's a sale going on too. <laughs> and this PCR test is literally balanced on his fingertips. Look close. He's hanging 10. This is also Frederick Nietzsche, tightrope tight walker. This is Apollo. This is also what? Silver Surfer. Also Silver Surfer, yes, yes. But look at the PCR test on on of his fingertips. That's the nasal swab. That's the ads tool of the <laughs> of extracting your DNA and putting it on stasis. This is fucking Carrie Mollusk. And there is something fascinating about targeting individuals or vanity with the shadow of envy. And I see the little winged egg here. I see the eight-pointed star. I see, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tarot deck, so of course it's going to be just drenched in symbolism. But yeah, that's crazy. That is the surfboard, right? That's the surfboard with the little stripe that goes right down the middle. Dude, the, this Thoth deck is the fucking playbook. It's not like other decks. Everybody thinks they see the word. They presume a lot. Uh, Lady Frida Harris said herself, she's quoted... Uh, as saying this, uh, that the deck is not for divination like everybody thinks, and that it is in fact an instructional meditation tool that will unpack over the course of a hundred years. She was born in 1877. Star Wars came out in 1977, and I've been unpacking it ever since. It is really fascinating the uh, the significance of that deck in particular. You know, it's not like other decks in. I don't want to freak anybody else out or give anybody any kind of weird biases, but I don't think it's for divination. I think it's for social engineering. I can, I'm sure it is. I know it is. Uh, you probably know about this already. This is something that my friend David Charles plate of the sync book put me onto very recently. And I'm I love that guy to, to break it down with him. Yeah. He, he's awesome. Uh, but Dude, he you pointed know. out to me, what was that? He, uh, he and Exertus and Homie Romy and I did a show on Wizard of Oz, and Homie lost the recording. Was, <laughs> yeah, that's that sounds the most Homie Romy thing that I've heard all day. It, yeah, it of was, course he did. It was that's his archetype. 
<laughs> it was an epic, epic weave. It was an epic weave. Apparently, only Exertus's uh, recording came through, so it was like him talking to himself for three hours. Uh, but yeah, I love those guys. Big up. There. So so uh, David Charles Plate pointed this out to me. It starts with the Golden Bow, but the Golden Bow um, then I think influences the this Thoth deck, and in particular the Fool card, and it breaks down this concept. And I'm I'm gonna butcher it, and I'm just gonna free ball it anyways because I don't just want to like read it out. But the the concept in general is that this uh, this full card and and um, Tetragrammaton, it's a breakdown of this heroic adventure, but it it inverts the concept of legacy, where we consider that the king would have um, a son, and the son just automatically becomes king, and that's kind of the, the patriarchal system we have. But there was an older system where it was the king's daughter that would decide who takes rule over the kingdom. And what would happen is that the prince uh, would have to kind of sneak in. It would always have to be a stranger. They would always dress up and, and disguise themselves so no one knew they were the prince. And he would have to kind of like allure and like win, typically win the princess away in some sort of a competition or through some Ooh. sort of like a deceptive means. But the the stickler here and the reason why he goes in into... um. Uh, like undercover essentially is because he can't just wed the princess and become king he has to also kill her father the king and this not only ensures virility but it also ensures that there's no inbreeding going on among this like very high class which was a very practical and real issue so anyways it breaks down and apparently it ties i don't know exactly how but into the full card as described um as this formula of like tetragrammaton as uh, explained in the Golden Bow, which is, I think is from like 1890 or something. Anyways, yeah, I'm brand wow. new to it. It sounds it would be like right up your alley. Maybe we all g- got to get together and like do a breakdown of this. That sounds fabulous. You know, I already uh, I uh, I would totally recommend some of the side writing of Machiavelli, the the plot line of some of his playwriting uh, you just described there. Uh, I might be the source, might be kind of the root, the tap root that you guys are uh, picking up on. Um, it's not his Belphegor story. He wrote about Belphegor. Uh, so anytime Belphegor comes up, you're basically given a, a hail Machiavelli. Um, All right, we'll, we'll pull up Belphegor because I know it's like your favorite dude. Here it is. Here's your homie. He's the uh, the seventh demon of hell or something. I don't. I don't. I don't remember all the. What was it? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he's a, one of the seven princes of hell. Sorry. So here's here's your hellish prince. <laughs> kind of, dude, he kind of kind of looks like you, Gabe. I don't know what to say, bro. It, he's even got the little feathers. I mean, look like horns here, but he's got the little feathers in the hair and everything, dude. Ain't that something? Ain't that something? Yeah, man. This little bastard. I tell you what, he is uh, he is a clown and a half. This shit. Uh, so yeah, Belfagor's prime is a is a, a a mathematical phenomenon that has very fascinating behavioral patterns, and they extracted the symbol that mathematicians use to express Belfagor. Uh, they extracted it from the Voynich manuscripts, which is such a fucking obscure place to uh, pull. It's basically uh, the symbol is an inverted pi sign, but it's it is also the American eagle bird. 
this is the, what, so, the Voynich, not the Voynich, because that one's yeah. not interpreted, yeah. right? Or the Voynich manuscript? It is. It, yeah, they extracted a letter from the Voynich manuscripts and gave it this name, Belfagor, uh, to represent a mathematical phenomenon called Belfagor's prime. But Belfagor, the spirit, is uh, the infernal spirit of sloth. I think it's more of a nine in the Enneagram, but I can't put a finger on it. It's kind of a wiggly, giggly kind of thing. It's weird. But um, this whole idea was just really fascinating to get into that the mathematicians are like kind of uh, taunting the spiritual uh, minded soul by being like, oh, yeah, math is named after demonic spirits. You know, typical psychological bullshit. Um but I got really into this research, and I find out that Machiavelli uh, was connected to Belfagor. He wrote about Belfagor, and I, you know, I read that play or that writing. It's cute. Uh, and then I start to see it symbolically in a lot of places, uh, like the thinker, the thinking man, you know, where he's like, that's one of the Mandela effects, is his fist here, is his fist and down that's here. That, that same polyhymnia uh, or whatever her name was. What was her name? It's, it's got polyhymnia, yes, with that like resting and thinking. And when you're on the toilet, like Belfagor, that's where you get the most thinking done. It's where you do all <laughs> the, the planning and the reformation, right? So uh, all of this is like really taking life. And I'm like taking on the, this, uh, this new view of how symbols can be infused into our world in so many ways. And then it's like I'm months into studying this Belfagor or whatever and all its fingerprints. And guess what, man? There's an image on my bathroom wall. It was there all along. For all these months, I'm studying Belfagor. Above my head, on my throne, in my house, is a poem of Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And the poem is, uh, is written out in really fine letters, but it has this image, shadow image of a uh, caged bird flying out of the cage, leaving. And the little letters of this art is the actual poem itself written by Maya on the Lou. I'm on the Lou reading Maya Angelou <laughs> with a poem about the bird who is slothful. The bird who's the infernal spirit of sloth in the cage will not move, will not leave. It's like a constipation poem. She knows why, right? But the thing that really gets me, man, the thing that gets me beyond all those coincidences, those coincidences lining up is if you knew the person who gave that picture to me, the whole thing explodes with meaning, significance, it transcends potentialities of reality. How in the fuck did the one single most slothful person I've ever met in my life in person, the, the epitome of sloth, gifted that painting to me? And I can't, I can't go any further. I, I have to stop. I have to hit the brakes and be like, Belfagor, shut the fuck up. You shut the fuck up. I haven't taken the painting down from my bathroom, but what a mind fuck that it was hovering above my head all that time I was researching that bastard. And so, yeah, the Elvis Presley death just, you know, hit too close to home. You had me at the Maya Angelou uh, poop joke, dude. Like, how did you get there? I like it. I love, dude. I love you, Gabe. <laughs> Will you marry me? This is this is me <laughs> proposing right now, man. The but Okay. <laughs> I hear the I, ring I, of truth in your voice. There's the <laughs> clip, bro. There's the clip for the episode. It's the Maya Angelou poop reference. There's, oh, no, there's nothing else. And and uh, fine, dude. Just start with math. We circle back to math. Now we're in Balfagor's prime again. What's with math, dude? Come on. 
This is supposed oh, yeah. to be like a laid back sort of conversation. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, um, uh, Pythagoras had his um, his order arranged so that the matematikoi were the outer ring, and it was the inner ring that were the akus matikoi. And they were very superstitious. They had those weird things like they could only piss in their shadow and they had to spit their fingernails out. These weird superstitions. You can't put your knife in the fire. And I'm kind of, I'm, I've, I've uh, let go of the matematikoi as much as I can. It's still every fucking where. But I believe that the matematikoi, that we, when you take on the social security number, you believe in the numbers. You live by the numbers. So the outer ring of initiates, the outer priest class, they don't realize that they're in the priest class, but they are living by number and they worship number. They're always worrying about that balance thing. But there's an inner circle that I'm that I'm seeking out. And it's strangely illogical, you know, and like some of the mysteries of what we do know about that inner circle, the Akus Matakoi, you know, the fact that they would spit out their fingernail. I think that has to do with refusing joinder. I think that uh, touches into like the sovereignty movement and like refuting the birth certificate or any attachment to a, to a beast, you know? And so spitting out your fingernail is kind of a Dumbledore technique of being like, this is no longer a part of me and I'm formalizing the separation by spitting it. Um, also, this is weird, but uh, in Italy, the number 17, the letter Q was very superstitious and they used to spit whenever 17 or Q would come forth. So there's something about the cuticles, the cuticles being spat out. And this, I think, has much to do with the umbilicus and the placenta and breaking joinder from the, from the machine. I've heard something similar to that. I'm, I was trying to look it up. I don't remember what it was, but that the, uh, the don't put a knife in the fire or don't put iron in fire that also had some other symbolic reference where you're talking about the exoteric where people are like, Oh, get that, get that knife out of the fire. Didn't you hear Pythagoras? But other people they are like, that's not what he was talking about, dude. You know what I mean? Like here, take, you know, like he was talking about, but I forgot what the thing was, of course. Cause that's like, that was been the wisdom part, but it, right. but it was a, a metaphor for like, you don't combine these elements or it might've been something about being hot headed. Um, like, like, don't strike out of passion. I'm make now. I'm making this up, but I remember it was something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah. The, so uh, Pythagoras. This is one of my really wonderful. Uh, I think it's a triple or quadruple gematrological match uh, in my prime ciphers. Um, Pythagoras matches with Washington, which matches with superb lord which matches with vaccinations so washington superb lord pythagoras and vaccinations are a triple cipher match which is like the the biggest one i've ever stumbled upon on my own it's a real doozy here we go don't mix fire with a knife means not inciting rage or swollen anger of people in power don't step over a balance beam. Don't transgress equality and justice. Don't sit on a bushel. Means keep today and the future in mind since a bushel is a daily ration. Uh, wow. Yeah, that this, makes this me, interesting. That makes me think of uh, that maybe it's also 
whispering, uh, do not inflame the knave. The knave is a, you know, a conniving person. If you, if you know they're twisted and they're going to stab you in the back, don't, don't fuck with them. <laughs> and I, I just got to, this might have nothing to do with the Pythagoras, but in NLP terms, you pretty much never want to start with a don't. Like the don't gets ignored the second you hear the part that comes after the don't and, and the don't becomes a challenge, right? Uh, so like, for example, like if you're training a dog, or you're training a child, it's usually better to tell them what to do. You give them positive direction, do this thing. But when you say, don't jump on the couch, the thing that they hear is jump, like, bah, jump on the couch, right? Like the, the, the don't part just evaporates sometimes. So that's all they hear over and over. Jump on the couch, jump on the couch, jump on the couch. If you tell them, go outside and play, now all of a sudden you're not repeating that thing. But anyways, I mean, whenever I see a don't do this in, in just NLP terms, I almost feel like there might be a message in here for like, you know, maybe they want people to do this and like the smart people, you know, me, me and you, that's me and you included in the smart people. <laughs> <laughs> but like we know that the don't means the don't, but the rest of this is for like everyone to actually do the. I don't know. I'm just I'm just spitballing here. I want to say that that you play jazz well, my friend. If we were to like start a jazz band, you know, you'd be the drummer because you, you could keep the beat, and we could just be improvising for hours and hours and hours, right? So I, yeah, I love man. that about you, man. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, man, this is a good one. This is really fun. I love where we're uh, all over the place. Yeah, the Pythagoreans, man, they're they're still quite yeah, they're up and running in all different flavors. If you bring this back to more math, I am going to be so mad at you, Gabe. Enough with the Pythagorean theorem and the, this. Dude, I, I feel like this was an intervention. This was actually you. Like, I'm just gonna make I'm gonna make paranoid American do math live. <laughs> I love yeah, you, dude. Man. Uh, Tell people where to find Slick Dissident. Do you have any projects going on? You said that you kind of took a little hiatus. So here's mm -hmm. me kicking you in the ass and get off of your hiatus. Big up, man. I need it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Slick Dissident on the YouTube. I've been uh, kind of sitting it out for the summer, but uh, I've also been over on Chance Garten's uh, Interverse over on Rockfin. Uh, you catch me over on uh, Rising from the Ashes with my, my homies over there. Big up to all the. All Shout the, out to Anunnaki Dan and Homie Romy. All of them. Yeah, man. Uh, and then also, I'm on the one-on-one -on -one podcast, Hamunking It Up. We don't talk about that podcast on this podcast. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. To, to read the comments below to find out why there's beef between me and Juan now. We're not talking to each other. Screw that, oh, dude. Sweet. Oh, yeah. We're yeah, going to have like East Coast Florida versus West Coast Florida about to pop oh, off. Yeah. No, nah, this one? is like city Which? slicker versus versus redneck cattle poker. <laughs> he's a he's a Florida cracker, bro. I'm the white guy, but he's the cracker. Isn't that crazy? Dude, we could have to get Greg Carlwood to come in and <laughs> and regulate with you guys <laughs> now that he's <laughs> and in this corner. <laughs> okay, I want to let me drop this one more last nugget. This was fun. This was on my walk yesterday. Tavistock is an anagram for stove tick stove tick is gaslighting stove tick is gaslighting tavistock break, break that down for me why is stove tick gaslighting because it's the sound that a stove makes when you're 
turning on the gas. It goes tick, tick, tick. Okay, I, I got it. I got it. The sound of the stove tick is also uh, auditorily almost identical to the opening of every Greg Carlwood fireside chats. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm not thinking that Greg Carlwood is on the is on Tavistock. No, I think the program is. I think it's organic. I think he picked up on that uh, the power of sound of association to sound. And so now what really uh, floats my boat, mystically speaking, is how Tavistock is also, now I'm crossing my arts here. I'm, I'm using two muses at once. I'm having a threesome with the muses on this, okay? Anagrams and gematria, right? I'm, I'm, I'm getting down with two different muses, the anagram muse and the gematria muse. Tavistock also relates to tobacco. It relates to bacchanalia, to a bacchanalian ritual. Smoking cigarettes is a tobacco. It's tobaccus. It's a bacchanalian expansionist uh, <laughs> ceremony. I've never heard that, tobaccus. I like that, dude. It's awesome. Yeah, man. So we're taking in this medicine. This is sacred tobacco. It's expanding. We're uh, we're having a bounty. It's a, uh, if you've ever seen Countryman, you know the smoking scene when they're eating the food, and every time they cut scene, the stogie is getting bigger. the The spliff gets bigger as the scene progresses. That is a bacchanalian ritual. Give thanks. Now, every time that our ancestors lit up a camel cigarette, they were hailing this sound, this strange striking sound to spark off the ritual, the ceremony, this auditory association to the satisfaction of this imbibement that we're going to have. And then one more thread there uh, is this Highway 66 was the Camel's Highway, where so much tobacco from the South was uh, transferred, uh, keeping the spirit of America alive, that traveling uh, exchange, uh, practice of exchange. So, yo, man, you got a light? Yo, man, you got a camel? What kind do you smoke? Click, click. There's this strange Bacchanalian association that goes right back to uh, the anticipation of fire, that the fire is about to spark up. And I just wanted to make all of those threads known because that's kind of how this world works. And I don't know what it means, but it's just fascinating that Tavistock is the gaslighters and that they've seated themselves into every uh, tobacco ritual that all of our ancestors ever partook of. So that's one hell of an egregore, don't you think? Dude, and that's one hell of an exit. And dude, another sink. I don't, I don't know how you do this. You are magical. But coincidentally, if you believe in coincidences, this episode has been sponsored by Tavistock. And if you go to Tavistock.com and order their full mind melt ritual uh, luxury package, you put in the code paranoid15, you get 15% off. So you heard it here first. Nobody else has Tavistock Institute discounts like Paranoid American, Paranoid15. Yeah. <laughs> there we go, dude. Love you guys. Here is. 
a uh, a Tavistock funded commercial. Real quick. They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.